Welcome to Phil's Breakfast Metal episode 46. This episode is going to be the fourth in my look back at each year of the decade, this one focusing on 2013. So we do the usual of go through some kind of worthy mentions and then get into the top 15 proper. Was going to be an episode with Rob, but that's been delayed due to him moving house. So we'll have that one coming out in the next fortnight or so. So 2013 was another really excellent year and I think we're going to see this trajectory actually from pretty much this point onwards of almost every year now you can find across the board of like all the subgenres something really cool happening or at least some releases that really were very impressive. So if we get into some kind of, there's a lot here actually, albums I'm really obsessed with that didn't even make the top 15. So this year we had Orphan Land put out their album All Is One which was Kind of like them to making an epic change into kind of over-the-top power metal meets folk metal. Which starts really strong, but for me, like, tails off after about track six. Like, I really like what they did in the first half of it, but then it goes a bit more mellow and folky in the second half and just doesn't quite keep up the atmosphere of some of those earlier tracks. Code released their first album without Faust on vocals, uh, Organox, which, very strong album for Code, but not quite up to the standard of the one before or after. Separation released Cube 3, which is fine. It's not it's not one of their stronger albums, but still has like a lot of their signature kind of style about it. Ishan put out Das Slien Brechen, which was a hyper experimental album for him, featuring moments of like sort of compositions that came out of true improvisation. And it's got some interesting moments. There's also some really good, like, almost poppy moments in tracks like Pulse. But overall, it doesn't have a great flow as an album. It's certainly not one of his stronger ones. Oathbreaker put out their second album, Eros and Teros, which saw them delve into a far more kind of rough and ready black metal sound from their very polished, kind of more in-your-face hardcore on the previous album. It's pretty decent, but I feel it's sort of too heavily leaning on the atmospheric and there's not enough just cool grooves in it. Intronaut uh, put out Habitual Levitations, which is an excellent kind of, like, Mastodon meets very jazz-influenced extreme metal. Really good stuff about it. It's one, and it's the rare example of this, where the lyrics are so bad it really puts me off the album. But... If you can look past that kind of thing, it's a really decent uh, release, and the drum work on it is utterly incredible. Um, Rotten Christ put out Cataton Demonia Itoi, which is a solid Rotten Christ album. It's just one I've never hugely got into. I just haven't given it enough time. Flesh God Apocalypse put up Labyrinth, which is very much a slightly more polished version of the sound they were attempting on Agony. Kind of more... Um, but in, in that kind of neoclassical vein with the bombastic orchestra over the top, programmed orchestra. But they've just got a bit better at this point of, like, controlling the sound down into something manageable where it doesn't quite sound so much like it's bursting at the seams. Unfortunately, I just don't think the songwriting was quite up to the standards of the previous album. Exhumed released uh, Necros Necrosy, um, which was a pretty good return to form for Exhumed. Like, the first half of it particularly is really good. 
tails off slightly in the second. And in a very similar vein, Carcass returned with Surgical Steel, an album many, many people were really into at the time. And while I think it's got some great moments, I, I just don't believe it lives up in any way to the sort of the two real classic Carcass albums. Although it does do something quite fun as sort of combining elements of, of both, never really getting into the grind territory at all. This is far more melodic, kind of polished death metal, but a la heart work, really. Wattain released The Wild Hunt, which was a massive disappointment after Lawless Darkness, but almost couldn't not be. Lawless Darkness is an absolute masterpiece, whereas The Wild Hunt is a very unfocused album. There's there's some of your standard Wattain, like, blasting, groovy black metal, but then you've got moments like They Rode On, which is entirely clean vocals and almost feels like the kind of those long build-up sections you get in more modern Iron Maiden songs. It's really cool, but the album has no logical flow. It's all over the fucking place. Uh, like, they'll have, like, Wild Hunt just go, like, sort of comes straight out of the back of a blasting track and then straight into another one. It, it, it feels like they were trying something very experimental that I just never quite got my head around. Um, a kind of more interesting, obscure one, Arcacia released uh, Tills Dossen Skilligos 8, which is a really, is I think this is vaguely a supergroup, but it's a really good, like, atmospheric black metal project. Some very heavy on the melodic side of things, lots of very long builds, possibly slightly too long a builds in places, but if you like that kind of atmospheric black metal, this is really worth a look, as well as, like, having some cool clean vocal elements. In a similar vein, and me and Rob have covered this album before, Progni Terrestria Pura put out UMA, which is, again, a very epic... Um, atmospheric black metal, but this one more leaning on the sci-fi rather than the folk. Another very popular atmospheric black metal album came out this year, Death Heaven Sunbather. Very divisive, this band. I think I sit, like, weirdly in the middle of this where I, I just... I've never really loved what they do, but I also don't hate it. To my ears, it just seems like someone kind of... They're just like an American Alcest, really. Like, they're doing what Alcest did, but happening to be American, I think they've kind of got a huge boost off of that, and, you know, it's, it's not terrible. I, I don't quite get the absolute hatred for it. In far more extreme vein, Ulcerate put out Vermis, which is a solid enough Ulcerate album, but I just feel off the back of Destroyers of All, it does nothing better than that previous album, so as such, it's a little bit forgettable. Uh, Voices put out the debut from the Human Forest creator Fugue of Imaginary Rain. It's pretty good, but again, like because they have the follow-up in London that is so utterly perfect, this album always feels a bit unnecessary Like to go back to. It's just, just nothing on it is as good as what will happen on the follow-up. Persephone put out Spiritual Migration, which is a really good kind of prog meets tech death album from from, from a, like the one of the only bands in andorra well worth looking up um particularly the video for the title track like there's some amazing like drum and guitar work in there an album rob's really fond of which i've never quite got my head around is guttural slugs megalodon which brutal as fuck um, also one of those weird ones like i don't know how you can justify an album being like 19 minutes long it's not a grind it's like I could say more slam. My issue is always it's basically it's not heavy enough, despite being really brutal. Like the kind of cleanness of the production, I don't know, leaves me slightly cold. 
Two that I just totally didn't get this year, but I, I they've definitely got their defenders. Cathedral put out their final ever album, The Last Spire, and for whatever reason, I just don't think this works as well as some of the the previous Cathedral albums. I, I've always been someone who doesn't mind Lee Dorian's very weird, clean singing, but on this album, I can't get my head around it. It just doesn't work for me. And in a kind of similar kind of old school doom, like really old school doom, uh, Black Sabbath released their 13th and final album, 13, and it was really forgettable. <laughs> like, I'm glad they did it so they could keep touring and so on, but it felt kind of unnecessary. But th- th- again, this it does have its defenders. Oh, one other we should mention, Shining, uh, the Norwegian Shining, that is, put out 111, where they took the ideas of black jazz and that kind of the way they'd introduce that really experimental jazz into the kind of far more melodic, um, metallic kind of sounds, and then went, took that, but then condensed it down to more like pop structures. So it's like, it's so, so much more accessible than black jazz. And on the strength of the earlier tracks, it would be an absolute classic, but I do feel it sort of loses its way and gets a bit boring halfway through. Still, still an interesting album, still well worth checking out, but just. It's not the prog genius that Black Jazz was, and I, I don't think it ever could be. Oh, and finally, uh, the Muse of Asphodel put out the album Sonder Commando, which both me and Rob really like. Very, very weird, out there avant-garde music, but well worth a go if you want to watch a band doing something completely out there with black metal. There wasn't really much in the way of EPs that I, I was aware of this year, or even DVDs. The only really good like live music DVD I got was Devon Townsend's Retinal Circus, which, although I'm not the biggest Devon Townsend fan in the world, this DVD is pretty fucking mind-blowing. It's filmed at the Royal Albert Hall and features, like, not only kind of, like, his full band, completely guest vocalists and so on, um, there's also a whole kind of, like, circus performance going on, so, like, loads of dancers come out in various costumes during all all different parts of the set. Steve Vai is in it to narrate between the scenes. We even get um, Jed appear at one point to go through a strapping on lad cover. So it's it's got all sorts going on. If you're into any period of Devon Townsend's work, this is well worth a look, and I'd say probably the best representation of it you're going to see. In the more rock realm, we got a lot of really cool albums this year. Uh, Clutch put out Earth Rocker, which saw them taking on, I think they said after touring with Motorhead, they realised they'd gone a bit too light and wanted to do some heavier albums, and Earth Rocker, like a far heavier album for Clutch, and really consistent, actually, considering how patchy the previous three albums they did were. I think Earth Rocker is a real return to form. Jex Foth put out Blood Moon Rise, which is a great kind of female-fronted occult rock band, very kind of folky and atmospheric in places, and just really catchy choruses. The Devil's Blood uh, put out their third album, which I think was like basically built off the demos going into it before uh, before their guitarist sadly took his own life. It, it, the problem is, for whatever reason, the final mix has the most horrible drum production in the world. Like It makes the album almost unlistenable, despite the very high quality of writing. Very similar vein again, Blood Ceremony put out the third album, The Eldritch Dark, which just continues on doing what Blood Ceremony had been doing basically since the debut, just making really a catchy, really catchy melodic occult rock. It's, yeah, pretty excellent. Uh, I think the only change up to the formula with this one is their bass player does some extra clean vocals in it. 
Ghost put out their second album, and I've got to admit, as much as I enjoyed the first Ghost album, this was the point where they totally lost me. I, I, I'd always been saying with the first album, like it was great fun, but I was, I wanted to see what they're going to do next to reinvent the formula, and to my ears, I just don't think Ghost ever really reinvented the formula. They just did the same thing over and over. And having heard the first album, I kind of had enough of it by that point. One that's absolutely amazing and very, very out there. Uh, the Master Musicians of Bukaki put out their album Far West, which is just mind-blowing. It's so, it's so strange and experimental. It has this real kind of weird ritual feel throughout it with loads of great elements of like more folky stuff um like and like kind of folk from all around the world coming in and then mixed with like electronica and then some far more kind of psychedelic rock uh there's the best way i think to experience this there's a youtube video you can find of them doing a live show where they play the first couple of tracks off far west look that up it's utterly mind-blowing and Monster Magnet put out Last Patrol, which I, I think was a very strong album for Monster Magnet. It, after being a bit more poppy on quite a few of their previous albums, this was them really chasing the more psychedelic end of their sound, and that, that's what they were good at. This, this is like the closest they'd come to Dopes to Infinity since Dopes to Infinity, in my, my opinion. Alright, with that, let's get into this uh, top 15 then. Uh, there's quite a few in this top 15 this time around that I've covered on the podcast before, so I'll be kind of like skipping over those ones, so hopefully it'll be a slightly shorter show this time. The main trend I kind of noticed with 2013, I think this year, I don't know if I've said this before for a previous one, but the thing I've noticed is there was a real rise in the kind of populist prog metal, like a lot of bands that would go on to become sort of staples of that kind of prog metal scene or like the kind of newer prog metal scene put out like their absolute career defining album at this stage and then there's some other stuff that's sort of again these bands never quite got big but were equally in the prog metal vein and doing something really quite interesting actually and as well for me this year not that much black metal which is a bit of a rarity and number 15 we have the japanese death metal power trio uh, Gotsu Totsu Kotsu and their second album Legend of Shadow. I won't be saying many more song titles from this because they're entirely in Japanese. Uh, if you're not aware of this band, they are death metal focusing almost entirely on Japanese like samurai stories. Like the band members as well dress up like samurais on stage. They've got a whole cool kind of image thing going on. It's very much the project of Haruhisa Takakata, a uh, bass player and vocalist and main songwriter. He I think they're on to their fifth album now, and he seems to have quite a revolving door lineup of like a new lead guitarist and new drummer on every single album. They their kind of style of death metal is very kind of straight up, riffy, simplistic to the point death metal. It's often quite first chorusy, um, with like cool middle eights with like fancy flashy guitar solos. Like there's a lot of really cool sounding guitar solos in this. The other really notable thing is Haruhisha's bass playing is absolutely excellent. He really well utilizes like fancy slap bass stuff in this, um, really fast picking. The guy is like immensely capable of playing while while doing the vocals. The only uh, downside to this is 
it might be an effect of that is his vocal technique is very one-dimensional he's just got this this really low guttural noise it's a really cool noise but there isn't much variation up on that front guitarist uh, asushi takahashi does some excellent solos on this like really less flashy but just really really memorable catchy stuff the only real downside of this album is that the production's really really dry like there's something just a bit off at it but the the riff writing and songwriting is so good it like totally carries it we have the fourth album by extreme avant-garde death metalers Portal. Portal are an Australian five-piece who do this kind of extremely abrasive horror-filled death metal. It's, it, they, I think they describe their sound as like we, we tried to do something evil on every subsequent release and just removed anything that doesn't sound like hell essentially. Um, 
they're a really solid band. Many of you will probably be aware of them. They've kind of gained a certain degree of notoriety due to their, their image and so on. They're, the band members are all completely anonymous and they all wear like hoods on stage, like sort of often like sort of black hoods with hangman nooses around their necks. Um, the singer, uh, the curator, always wears some absolutely bizarre headgear. At one point, it was like a grandfather clock. Uh, another it was what looked like the sorting hat from Harry Potter. This album, he's gone down the road of like some bizarre kind of blackened wedding veil. It, it's weird stuff, but what they do is this kind of really Lovecraftian influenced, um, terrifying horror music. It, it really does seem to be like trying to capture like kind of the fear of those like Lovecraft shorts. Vexavoid's quite an interesting one because it's certainly, I'd say, the closest thing they've ever done to an accessible album. So this doesn't quite like Suave. The previous one was so horrendous, like it was genuinely hard work to listen to. This one, I felt, a, it was a lot easier to get into. A lot more kind of there's moments you can sort of pick out of the chaos. Um, I've heard their their sound described as the guitar tone being like a bum, uh, washing machine full of bumblebees. Um, it, it's got that kind of absolute like impenetrable fuzz to it still. And when I say this album's more accessible, it's more accessible in terms of how fucked up this band already were. The musicianship is incredibly competent, but you'd never really know it just because everything is such a kind of chaotic mess. The curator's vocals are this very bizarre kind of washed out uh, like low, low, almost whispering noise, often like very deeply hidden in the mix. The the bass does something really interesting as well. Of like, normally it's kind of sort of following along with one of the guitars, but every so often will drop these incredibly huge sounding low notes in, just like something that will absolutely burst through the mix. I mean, for the absolute best kind of way to experience this album and this band actually if you haven't before is there's a video for the third track curtain which is just perfect for this band like it, it's the first time they did a music video and it totally suited them down to the ground a criticism i have of this and like actually a lot of later Paulson material and this is a bit of an odd one but i have found that the lyrics have got so kind of complex and abstract i can now no longer get a handle on them at all and possibly it's i'm just not bright enough to do so. For comparison, here's a segment of lyrics from Sepia, their first album back in 2003, from the final track, The End Mills. Four crooked limbs in creaking circulation, instruments for the sway, antique gluttons exhaust, deflate the living earth. And whereas this is some lyrics from the, the backwards on uh, Vexavoid. Nebulous pedigree, curious amulous stimuli, administered inexorably, Amalgamatic fissures, substantia grisei, deep echo, foretoken heed. The first of those conjured up a mental image for me. The second, I'm just bombarded by words that I just, I'd have to get a dictionary out for almost every single one of them. But overall, that's a pretty minor criticism of this album. I think it's definitely the perfect start point for this band if you've not come across them before. Possibly not their strongest release, I'd say probably their second album, Ultra, is my, my favourite of theirs so far. But yeah, definitely worth a look and, as I say, check out that music video.
Number 12, we have the third album by the Greek band Universe 217, who are kind of like weird, quite melodic, but still quite extreme in places, Doom. They formed in 2005 in Athens. And their third album, I think it's the first one for me, where they really started getting their sound together as a whole. Uh, the main focal point of Universe 217 sound is Tanya's ridiculous vocals. She doesn't have a particularly high voice, but she has a level of like bombast and power to her vocals that is just ridiculous. Then the lineup's filled out by um, a drummer, a guitarist who often switches, like, he has a double neck guitar and often switches between doing very sort of melodic um, chord work on the 12 string and, and more kind of heavy power chordy stuff on the sixth string and a bass player who I think live switches back between doing keyboard work so there's a lot of like electronic and keyboard kind of overlays in this um performed by a guest musician who is listed as Elini and she adds some quite atmospheric stuff the album as a whole is incredibly experimental for Doom. So it, it does a lot of, like, messing around with really short songs where it will just be, like, a quick build-up to one repeating motif and then the track will end. Um, the, the album starts with Mouth, which just explodes with Tanya's vocals right at the start and, and almost nothing else. Then the hefty chords come in. But then we have tracks later, like Gravity, where the rest of the band provide, like, a massive groove over... A, like a repeating vocal refrain so it comes to like a really heavy really memorable close then towards the end we have she and never which are both like closing on 10 minute long tracks which do far more with like long form builds and lots of um lots of sort of drawn out more uh, experimental sections there's some cool kind of almost psychedelic rock type stuff in here but it's all has a very melancholic vibe which i think is what uh so roots it in doom more than anything else like the the lyrics are all very sad and very personal stuff often like kind of in the kind of relationship vein but overall they're just a very unique sound i've not heard many bands like this and i like how kind of complex and out there a lot of their compositions are their follow-up album would far more um hone that sound down but i like the kind of complete experimentation of Never. It's a really interesting one. The only thing that really lets it down for me is the production is a little like a little rough around the edges. This sounds like a very good demo rather than like a truly polished Doom album. But I imagine they're doing it on a pretty small budget. They only made 500 copies of this album to give you an idea of like the scale of the band.
At number 12, we have an album we covered very recently on the podcast, back on episode 40, our Doom special with Simon. This is Hanford's Est, which, um, honestly, all you need to know to get into this band is go look up their... Like, if you search for Hamford, they're a Faroe Islands-based band, and there is an amazing live performance of the vocalist and two guitarists uh, performing during an eclipse live, and it's one of the most spectacular live videos I've ever seen. The This band are kind of death doom with some incredible, utterly mind-blowing clean vocals. Like, just the sheer power of them when they first kick in on this album is Yeah, it really blew me away. So yeah, I'd highly recommend checking this one out. Number 11, another album we covered on the podcast all the way back on episode 2. This is the self-titled debut from the Earls of Mars, who are a London-based kind of progressive doom, I guess, band. They feature a vocalist slash keyboard player, guitarist drummer, and a double bass player. And they do this very simplistic kind of stripped-back heavily blues-influenced doom with these bizarre vocal melodies. Like All the lyrics are totally out there, mad little stories. It's really, really enjoyable and engaging stuff. Uh, yeah, if you want to hear me and Rob go on about it at length, go back all the way to our very early episodes. At number 10, we have the seventh and final album by F.L. Duaf. So F.L. Duaf are the kind of brainchild of David Tiso, an Italian guitarist, who's sort of done a very good job of combining experimental jazz and black metal. So we've recovered them a while back, uh, one of their earlier albums, The Painter's Palette. And this is a massive departure from that as Every FLUF album is from the last. So, with the EP before, Hemmed, Hemmed by Light, Shaped by Darkness, the EP before that, we got um, David Tiso's wife, Karen Crisis, came in on vocals. And they started following this more, I, I guess, accessible is the wrong word, but kind of more structured sound. The songs didn't have this utterly chaotic, rapid shifting nature to it. They had this more kind of like clear and easy to follow while still being bizarre and out there this still has a lot of um david's very interesting switches between clean and distorted tone guitars working in a lot of like jazz chords over like heavier patterns the uh the lineup on this is rounded out by marco miniman on drums who is just ludicrously good and brian bella on bass who's been involved in a lot of quite successful projects i think at this point in time they'd relocated to the states from italy um and it would kind of suggest why they got all these people involved also on production and mixing mastering all that kind of stuff we have eric rutan so kind of going outside his usual death metal vein but eric rutan has such a good ear for music the work he does in studio it is incredible, and this this album really displays that well. It's beautifully produced. It's so clear throughout. Um, he also provides some guest vocals on one of the tracks and a guest guitar solo. One of the big changes this brought to a Felduaf sound is Karen Kreiss's vocals, because previously they'd always used a scream vocalist and a clean vocalist to do these kind of maddening back and forth, often switching between the two headphones. That was completely gone now, they're just down to a lone vocalist. And Karen doesn't really go in for like the 
real death metal screams. Her vocals sort of sit in the middle of a, like singing and screaming at all times. Like she can go into some high pitch kind of cleaner voice stuff, but she mainly goes this quite odd, low, slightly growled, but still very melodic voice. She's, yeah, she'll be the thing that puts you off or drags you into this one, really. There's, she has a very unique sound to her voice. Personally, I absolutely love it, and I feel it helps with this one being the kind of, the more accessible, easy-to-grasp um, FLDF album. This album also has very interesting and engaging lyrics and a really cool album cover. It's just like it's just a really nice, complete package. There's a lot to this, and I'd say the same is true of most of um, FLDF's output. They, they've always got these multiple elements like locked down really well, just keeping things really interesting. Some real highlight tracks from this album are... Um, the opener, Feathers Under My Skin, and Through Flames I Shield. This might have been the song song for Thal Juaf, but with Davi Tiso now being involved in Karen Christ's Gospel of Witches and uh, Howling Sycamores, there's certainly more output in a similar enough vein to this that you can find something else to scratch that itch.
At number 9, we have the second album by the San Francisco-based death metal band Vastum. This band has quite a cool lineup. So we have on drums Adam Perry of Enemy Soil, like legendary old grind legend. He, I think he joined them a bit later on, but he still had an involvement in that band. We also have uh, Luca Indrio, who's most famously bass player and vocalist for Necrot. Also, we have uh, Leila Abdul Rath on guitar and backing vocals. She's also famed for um, her work with Hammers of Misfortune more recently in her really epic solo stuff. Then the uh, lineup is rounded out by Daniel Butler on vocals and Kyle House on guitars. I think half this band are also in the death metal band Ace Phalanx. Vastum are quite an interesting one. They don't quite have like the groove or catchiness of something like Necrot, but they still like sort of more traditionally structured. There's definitely a kind of like almost crusty punk edge to what they do. It's a very nasty, abrasive sound. It's actually getting in on that kind of really dirty, disgusting death metal sound before it really blew up as being such a big thing that it is like right now the vocals are really interesting in this there's um i can't tell quite who's doing what but there's certainly a, a really good like kind of low but still kind of discernible growl but then some more higher more kind of twisted kind of screeching in there and it all makes like because actually you can kind of follow along the lyrics to this so it all kind of puts that up at the front there's some cool guitar work, like a lot of the solos are just like messy and horrible, but in a very kind of calculated manner. And although it's not catchy in the way something like Necrot is, it's still got a lot of memorable elements to it. Actually, interestingly, it was the album cover that uh, introduced me to Paolo Giardi's artwork. It's got a appropriately completely hideous mess of an album cover that fits so nicely with everything else going on here. The lyrical themes are really decent in this. They, The idea they went for, I think, between Daniel and Leather, they wanted to do something that was, like, highly sexualized, but not in that kind of gross Chris Barnes, Cannibal Corpse kind of way. Something They wanted to do something that would completely fuck with the average metalhead listener's kind of sensibilities. And I think they've pulled it off to a large extent here. You can hear some really interesting interviews with Daniel talking about the lyrics. He's a very interesting, creative guy. Overall, though, this is just a fucking battering of an album, a really good kind of heavy, grimy, disgusting death metal album. There's no real element out of place. This is exactly what you want from that kind of sound.
number eight, we have the UK-based black and death metal band Grave Miasma with their first full-length album, Adori Sepulchralarum. These guys do that kind of, sort of similar to like Blood Incantation, that really kind of muddy, terrifying sound of death metal. Like there's certainly a bit more of a black metal influence in there, but there's a lot of similar elements that kind of... Like, I say, vocally, they sound like the absolute best of, like, the Swedish, like, the old-school Swedish death metal sound, but then the guitaring is far more, kind of, incantation-influenced, but, like, the, the similarity between them and, say, bands like Blood Incantation is they go for slightly more long-form songs and they're slightly more confusing esoteric structures these guys are as i say uk based um, a london band who sort of have their fingers in a lot of those kind of that kind of emerging black metal sound coming out of london uh, most notably drummer d was also in adoria for their hater of fucking humans album which is excellent um, sorry, the album's called Author of Incest. The first track's called Hater of Fucking Humans. But yeah, just excellent stuff. This um, this album really does a lot of stuff that, say, if you're a fan of Star Spawn, a lot of things that kicked ass on that, kick ass on this, it's just really heavy, terrifying music. Really bleak, apocalyptic. There's amazing little solos thrown in throughout, which are like... They're not like kind of old dive bomby or anything like that, but there's there's somewhere in that mid position where they're not really melodic, but they're still kind of memorable and cool sounding. Riff wise, there's loads going on. It's very hard to keep up with what the structures of these songs actually are. And the drummer also I find really interesting where he doesn't go in for the blast beats so often. There's a lot more like complex tom work throughout it. Just a really interesting drum performance. See, with this band, if you ever get a chance, watch them live. Like that is where they really excel. On top of this album, they've got a couple of other EPs out at this point, but I think we're very much due a follow-up from these guys. So hopefully sometime in the near future we'll be seeing more. But if not, this album is a spectacularly good debut. <laughs>
quite a similar vein, at number seven we have the French band Aesop, who were formed in 2002, and this is their fifth of six albums. So th- while uh, Grave Miasma are more like sort of on the death metal side of things, these guys are well and truly a black metal band, but they have that same level of like apocalyptic kind of despair to their sound, this like really overall bleak tone forced through with a very distorted guitar sound, like this kind of... They, their sound is more reminiscent of a lot of the other kind of classic French horrible black metal bands, your Death Spell Omegas, Blutus Nord in their heavier moments, that kind of thing. In fact, um, their vocalist is also in Antaeus, another kind of French black metal band who've been going for absolutely ages. Particularly with their album Arrow in the Heart, this is just really bleak sounding stuff the guitar tone as i mentioned is utterly amazing i was like sold on this album within seconds of hearing the first track it's just so incredibly dark the um so they're three piece vocalist guitarist and bass player and the guitarist also programs the drums so they have that similarity with Despo Omega where they're not relying on an actual drummer but rather than where Despo Omega kind of completely like almost abuse that fact by making the drums do completely impossible things. These guys are much more restrained with it. The, the drum performance is very uh, stripped back. It's also some cool stuff like the bass cuts through quite nicely on a lot of these tracks. And the vocal performance actually is something that I was really impressed by. For like a black metal performance, it's incredibly kind of emotive. There's a lot, there's just a lot going on with it. It really gets like the concepts across and gives this really hellish nature to the whole thing. Lyrically, I don't have much idea what's going on here, because although I've got a copy of the CD, they don't print their lyrics and they don't share them. But from the titles, I get the impression it's your kind of fairly standard satanic affair, but there's some really like nice touches to it. Um, particularly under nails and fingertips makes my skin crawl slightly, which is kind of what you want from this. Also, I think I forgot to mention, the album is called Arrow in the Heart and has a kind of, quite an interesting cover as well. It's very sort of, it looks like a very biblical kind of painting, like Renaissance painting of biblical stuff, I should say. Um, Kind of stained glass windowy, but made really, really creepy. Yeah, just overall, this is a really interesting band. I haven't had a chance to dig much further into them. Like, this is the only album I've got of theirs so far. But for this kind of black metal, the atmosphere is on point, and I really do think this is up there with a lot of their contemporaries in the scene.
number six, we have a band uh, I covered back in, I think, our best of 2016 episode. This is uh, Sub Rosa with their third album, More Constant Than The Gods. So Sub Rosa are quite an interesting band. They're uh, based in Utah in the, in the States, and they they kind of do somewhere between like sludge metal, post-metal some kind of stoner stuff. It's it's that kind of nebulously doomy, sad music. But their their lineup is what really kind of puts them out there is quite interesting. They're a five piece with a core of bass player Christian Creek and drummer Andy Patterson, then Rebecca Vernon on guitar and vocals. Then on top of that, Sarah Pendleton and Kim Pack both playing violin and backing vocals over it. And what we get with these songs is these very long-form, expansive, kind of spending a lot of time messing with one idea. Effectively, I remember hearing how they record is essentially the three of them with drums, bass, and guitar come in and record the bulk of the songs, and then the two violinists go in with over that kind of almost finished product and mess around improvising and trying just weird out their ideas should state as well it's all very clean vocal doom it's like the kind of weirdness in the vocals actually comes from rebecca's just got a very a very strange way of singing she's got this almost like permanently slightly off-key nature to her vocals that make them sound everything sounds just kind of wrong which which works really nicely for this because these songs are so immensely morose and like introspective there's something about that that mixed with these very bizarre bits of violin work really makes the sound quite interesting now this is definitely an album for the people with patience like the whole thing is all it's like six tracks it's almost 70 minutes long the opener the usher builds over like, almost 15 minutes length like starting out from the most subtle of bass notes with these near whispered like male and female vocals playing off and then eventually building into something much more massive when like the guitars kick in with this really heavy riff i think as well this is a band definitely for people who are into the lyrics and into finding hidden meaning and stuff in there the first track the usher is kind of it's sort of a a very poetically written love song that's seemingly a love song to death which yeah read what you want into it ghosts of a dead empire has a fantastic story behind it um well worth looking up i think you can find rebecca discussing kind of how she came to some of these lyrical ideas in terms of kind of the composition it's very sparse there's a lot of sections with very little happening like very simplistic grooves but when it hits the heavier moments everything does kick in and the power of them is definitely improved by the fact we've built up for so long through this sadly i discovered they uh, broke up as of like a fortnight ago so their next album the one we reviewed on our 2016 show is probably the last we'll hear from them but i believe most of the members have gone off to their various side projects they're all kind of incredibly talented musicians so i'm sure this isn't the last we're going to see of them
probably appreciate it's hard to get a feeling of that from such a short clip, but I'd definitely recommend going back and give Sub Rosa a go if you like any of your kind of more melodic, doomy stuff. At number five, we have the third album by the Norwegian progressive metal band Leprous. This is Cole, uh, released on Inside Out Music. So, we talked about Leprous a lot back in our 2011 episode with their album Bilateral. So, Leprous were this group of hyper-talented, young, prog-metal musicians from Norway who kind of got a break because their singer is related to Ishan's wife and they ended up being his backing band for tours although this was sort of a double-edged sword because it meant their introduction into the world of metal was through black metal purists which not the easiest uh, group to impress in the world cole is really interesting though if you're only familiar with bilateral or if you're only familiar with their later work it's the big turning point it's where they properly went from being essentially kind of a, a more traditional prog metal band into this kind of gent prog kind of thing, the kind of, you know, closer to the tesseracts and peripheries. Like, with Bilateral, you've got big, like, guitar solos still, a lot more, a lot more of that kind of Hakeny, like, earlier Hakeny sound, um, whereas... Cole became far more focused on rhythmic work and the guitar playing. I don't believe there's any guitar solos on this album at all. And a, a much bigger focus in Ina Solbar, the vocalist slash keyboard player, his kind of, his vocal delivery. The way the album opens with Foe, it incredibly states this, that the main riff of Foe is almost two notes. It's just like a one heavy hit on a, like a snare along with like all the guitars crashing and then just like switching to another note and just doing this back and forth of two notes while Ina does this incredible vocal performance over it and then like the end of the song fades out with this kind of freeway layered vocal thing going on it's very um very interesting stuff um so we also we get a lot of backing vocals from guitarist Tor and guitarist Oyston who yeah so they're the kind of those three and drummer Tobias were the long-term core of the band. Sadly, Tobias would leave off this album to join the Norwegian Shining, and he's the, actually the only member that's continued on as a backing band to Ishan, although Einar has since turned up as Emperor's keyboard player. Uh, this is also the last album we'd get Ryan T. Blomquist on bass for, although he's like he doesn't punch through the sound as much as he did in Bilateral. But yeah, overall, this, this album does a lot more messing around with songs structurally rather than having super complex riffs like there's some amazing stuff with say the second track chronic does this brilliant thing at the end where the riff just like slows down by a fraction every single time dragging out into this absolutely huge sound a lot of the songs have a more almost poppy nature to them like these very sing-along choruses particularly uh songs like the valley or coal or or the, the the single for the album cloak which is probably to this day still their most famous song and features some of either hitting some impressively high notes for a man um just to really mess with things as well at the end of the album we have contaminate me which features mainly guest vocals from Ishan and just like goes incredibly off the map into some quite weird almost experimental music territories also if you ever wanted to hear what it sounds like when Ishan orgasms <laughs> 
sorry, that was incredibly puerile. The kind of the other thing to note with this album is that we've got uh, that that huge eight string guitar sound coming. That that kind of you know the thing kind of pioneered by Meshuggah. That that kind of crushing, massive kind of stabs of guitars. And and I think they've clearly switched up from the previous album with that. It's quite interesting though. I saw them tour touring this album with uh, an album with, with another band we're going to get to in a bit. And they had a very interesting dynamic of having one guitarist for most of it on one of these, you know, big eight-string kind of Ibanez guitars, but then the other normally on like a Fender Strat, which is a very strange dynamic. Something they've moved away from since, and now both, like all the times I've seen them since, both guitarists are on the kind of eight-strings. Of stuff to mention, like, as always, Tobias's drum performance is absolutely excellent. He's a drummer I'm obsessed with. I think this guy is so good at doing a lot without appearing to do so. He like while he's replaced by Bard uh, on the next album and Bard has a far more kind of complex flashy style. I actually think Tobias almost suited this project more, but you know, that's just my personal taste in it. Ishan's work in the kind of production and recording side of it's incredible. The the, the general sound and mix of this album is exactly what this band needed. It's just made everything sound huge. Yeah, and, and it's a really brilliant turning point for a band, just doing something so new and creative from like completely changing direction. And they managed to do so for all of their first three albums. I've got to admit, their later sound, I've kind of dropped off on a bit more. Like Whereas I enjoy Cole, for my mind, there hasn't been enough evolution since it.
things are probably going to get a little rushed here with the final four because three of them we've covered at length before. And starting that off, we have Gorgut's Coloured Sands. So this is basically the album that came out when Luke Lemmy probably, like, reimagined and brought back the band. And I feel this album just utterly changed the face of extreme metal. The amount of influence Gorgut suddenly seemed to possess, which they almost they almost seemed forgotten, or at least they were never a band I heard referenced a lot when I was getting into old school death metal, but since their reformation, like everyone's like they are a kind of a staple, something really important to the scene. Anyway, um me and Rob talked about this album at length in episode 19 of this podcast, which I still think stands as one of the best ones we've done. So if you've not heard it, go back and give that one a listen, because I'm not going to be able to add anything particularly useful to that discussion. And number three, we have what I imagine would be a pretty divisive album. This is the fourth album by the Dutch industrial death metal band, the Monolith Death Cult, Tetragrammaton, released on Seasons of Mist. So this album it very much follows off where follows up where they left off with Triumvirate, this kind of intense, long-form, just epic, epic music. There's there's kind of elements of sort of bands like Flesh God Apocalypse in there, or if you like uh, listen to Project Hate from our previous episode, there's definitely nods to that, although this is far more... Although it has the kind of orchestral nature of... Um, Flesh God Apocalypse in places, it's far more rooted in like the kind of electronic side of things. There's the the actual death metal on display as well is incredible. Really, really well executed stuff. Like a lot of industrial death metal bands get kind of lost in the kind of the electronic side of things, but these guys still write some heavy fucking riffs. The drum performance is utterly incredible. Sadly, it was um, Sean's final final album with the band, but really, like his his double kick work is so interesting. He does so many interesting things with like cool, like segmented beats with it, rather than entirely be just like straight down the line double kicks throughout like there's so much groove for this the kind of dual vocal work of michael decker and robin cock is fucking incredible robin cock in particular i love his low kind of super low but super clear growls that end up at points going into ridiculously held lengths like Towards the end of, say, the second track, Human Wave Attack, he holds some notes that just go on forever. Yeah, there's so much kind of ambition to this album. The songs all kind of come in at that between like seven and ten minute mark. There's a huge amount of use of samples, but not in that kind of mortician dropping a massive sample before the song. The samples are like neatly layered into the songs and kind of cut in and out between the vocals. So you get this quite kind of hard to process kind of thing where you've got kind of little clips from like movies and so on playing where you have vocals coming in, especially you're listening to headphones, like vocals coming in from multiple directions and multiple layering over some very fast, fairly technical death metal. It's all kind of very modern flashy death metal, you know, triggered drums and so on, but not to the point where it loses the tone. It's still got a nice heft to it, but it doesn't sound kind of studio polished to the point of sterility there is still like you know a kind of raw edge to it i think some of that's actually added quite nicely by guitarist ivo's kind of solos being quite organic and got a lot of wah pedal kind of stuff like because it just a grounding in something else 
Carsten, the keyboard player, now guitarist of the band, actually does a lot of work layering in just bizarre effects throughout this. This isn't your kind of power metal keyboard player who just does that Cascio tone over the top. He does a huge amount of work coming up with various sound effects, various noises and weird things to add to just make just make it more chaotic, more utterly crazy. The thing plays as a brilliant piece as well. There's uh, like the way the songs flow into each other means the album's kind of like got this non-stop thing where it goes into these strange kind of samples in between tracks often like radios cutting in and out playing different things. Lyrically, it's a fascinating album. I'd say for a lot of people, it might cross the line way too much in, in various directions, actually. So, like, with the first track, God Among Insects, it's a whole thing told from the point of view of, I believe, Megatron of the Transformers, but quoting that famous um, I am all man as I am no man speech uh, from Julius Caesar. Like, it's totally ridiculous. But then we get into more like terrifying real way real world stuff with human wave attack is based on a particularly hideous incident in the Iran Iraq war. Drugs, thugs and machetes focuses on the Rwandan genocide. It's incredibly dark stuff and I do think they handle it well. It's bleak and like very, very brutal and upsetting. But then I don't know, these kind of I I can't think of any other bands covering topics like this, whether whether they strictly have the right to or not, I don't know. But otherwise, when was the last time you thought about the Rwandan genocide? It, it's it's an interesting ground to go down. And I think they hand, from my personal opinion, they handle it sensitively enough. We then have crosses into utter ridiculousness as well with um, the middle track, Supreme Avant-Garde Death Metal, just descends into complete stupidity with a le- level of like self-referential humour that gets... Utterly ridiculous. Personally, I find it hilarious, and I do think this is very well done, but it is completely over the top. Kind of continuing in the vein of it being quite jokey and bizarre, there is an orchestra accredited on this album, but I've looked them up, and I've looked up the conductor that's credited, and I'm not sure if they actually exist. I think this might just be cast and working from home on it. Beyond that as well, we have... uh, guest narration throughout it by Optimus Prime, as voiced by Peter Cullen, the voice of Optimus Prime in the old 1980s Transformers program. So, that's pretty awesome. It is bizarre, it is over the top, it is avant-garde as hell, but it's also really good fun. If you can get into this and not take everything too seriously, it's an absolutely brilliant listen.
And number two, we have another album I've already discussed in a great load of detail. This is the supergroup Vol, spelled V-H-O-L, um, and with their self-titled debut. So this this band features members of Hammers Misfortune, Yob, and Agalock. So it's Yob's vocalist, uh, Hammers Misfortune's guitarist and bass player, um, and Aesop Decker of Agalock on drums, performing this kind of it's really hard to describe their sound like me and Rob almost termed it progressive thrash but it's kind of like punk meets black metal meets traditional heavy metal almost power metal in places it's a very very complex confused but beautifully organic sound like it's just a, such a well realised beautiful concept album doing a sound that doesn't really sound like any other band it's utterly incredible stuff the performances across the board are amazing. As I said, the tones and the kind of organic nature of everything makes you just sound so good. If you're familiar with any of those bands um, I mentioned previously, Give This Album A Go and the follow-up Deep In The Sky are both utterly brilliant. We covered this album at length on our, I think, episode 15 where we did like the progressive thrash thing. So go back and have a listen to that if you want to hear more details about this. But all I say is just... Check out Vol, they are utterly brilliant and completely underrated. So, if further kind of anticlimax, my number one of the year is another album we covered in extraordinary length. This is Haken's third album, The Mountain. So, Haken are a British-based, um, incredibly proggy band that kind of came out of sort of that like Dream Theatre but kind of scene. But they started in a really interesting way. Their, their first demo was this fantastic mixture of kind of just splicing loads of cool bands kind of sounds together the next album which we covered um back on the i believe 2010 show like aquarius they sort of found their feet started getting a sound together second album visions kind of missed the point and i was worried the band had run out of ideas but then they came back with the mountain this incredible sprawling concept album they completely reinvented their sound they this this album is so complex and deep and layered it is just utter musical perfection in places the the lyrical concept incredible the musicianship the playing the kind of the way they mess around with instrumental sections utterly mind-blowing if you enjoy any kind of prog metal like give this one a go it is so different and weird i know a lot of people got much more on board with them with their follow-up album affinity where they kind of chased a more traditional kind of thing they went for more they moved away from doing their big concept albums and went for something a bit more kind of traditional song structures this is none of that this is utter madness we have Great sprawling songs like Falling Back to Earth coming in at like over 12 minutes. But then strange interlude tracks like As Death Embraces, which are mainly just based around like... Well, that one is like a three-minute just vocal melody. The closer somebody packs such a huge emotional punch to it, mainly delivered by just how brilliantly complex the vocal melodies are. Uh, Cockroach King, the single for the album. If you know, don't know this band well, look up the video for that because it's brilliant yeah i i don't really think there's much i can say about this album that we didn't say before when we covered it but i, I do think this is an absolute pinnacle for haken as a band and although they're still putting out very interesting stuff and still well worth following this to me was like 
yeah, their crowning moment. And getting to see them touring this when, at the same time, with uh, Leprous in support touring Cole and playing a lot of old bilateral material as well, still stands as one of like, the most fun live shows I've ever witnessed. So I guess in summary, 2013 was a killer year in metal. The amount of brilliant stuff I had to leave out of this countdown is is amazing. They yeah, genuinely, I think there's other albums that probably could have been my album of the year that didn't even make like the top 15 in here. And in trends-wise, I think we really saw the rise of like this kind of progressive music becoming quite popular, particularly like Haken and Leprous from this point would suddenly explode. Even Sub Rosa got a huge amount bigger. I guess that, that never quite translated to bands like FL Duaf, who always sat on just being a bit too weird for their own good. But I think this is a start we're going to see of just the amount of bands out there having access to do stuff the way they want means just all the genres are covered. We, Other than, like, I don't think there was a really amazing Doom album this year, but... You look at, like, we got brilliant black metal, brilliant death metal, progressive music taking on new and interesting directions. There's so much good stuff. This is definitely the point where we're seeing it just be the heyday of modern metal. So I think I'll leave it there for this episode. As usual, please, you know, come on the Facebook page, uh, Phil's Breakfast Metal. Get in contact on Twitter, at Breakfast Metal. Or if you want to get in touch via email, uh, at philsbreakfastmetal at gmail.com or just you know spread the word to friends like if you if we've covered albums but you've got friends going on about yeah show them the episode see what they think that'd be really cool oh also we've had a few bands contact us recently with material that's really awesome if you're recording stuff and want to share it with us like we may well be able to share it on the podcast just you know Get in touch. Like me and Rob are always happy to listen to new stuff. And if yeah, if fans of this are creating music, it'd be fucking great to hear it. Yeah, yeah, yeah.